And when an industry is not safe, people don't want, don't want to invest into, into this industry. And we decided that we know a lot about the supply chain. And using tools like Edge.txt and Sales.json, uh, we built an auto automation process that helps publishers clean up the reds.txt and by doing so we build a better path for a brand to buy the inventory but we also create an ecosystem where publishers feel safer working with uh, let's say vendors like us or others uh, that they didn't know what to do with up until now. Welcome to another episode of Blood, Sweat and CPMs. I'm your host Kurt Donnell. In today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rotem Shaw, the co-founder and co-CEO of Premise. Rotem is a veteran entrepreneur and longtime ad tech veteran with a passion for anticipating the next big thing in the industry. He loves to travel and wants to hopefully one day experience every single corner of the globe. Before we jump in, if you haven't heard the big news yet, I'm excited to share that Freestar has officially announced our acquisition of Sortable. We are super excited to join forces with an incredible company that perfectly aligns with our values and shares our publisher-first mantra. Be sure to check out our social channels or head to our blog to learn more. Now on to the show. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to welcome to the show Rotem Shaw, who's the founder and co-CEO of Premise. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kurt. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We are navigating some different time zones here. I think you're uh, 10 hours ahead of me, something like that. So a little early in the morning and later in the evening for you here. Yeah. <laughs> it's 5 p.m. here, but uh, good weather and phantom. It's fun. Israel in August, late evening, it's fun. Well, thank you so much for jumping in here today. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners do know, but could you just give us a little bit of background on what Premise does? Obviously, you guys have become a big player in the video space, but always nice to hear it straight from you. Okay, so Premise is a video discovery platform. What we do is we help publishers navigate in the video landscape uh, by helping them create video inventory in a more sustainable way from how they did it up until now. Uh, basically, it means that we work with publishers on pages that they don't have video in, and we help them recommend videos that the users will love in order to create new video inventory and then monetize it. It's about creating inventory, monetizing it for publishers, working together, and we've been doing it since 2018. That's amazing. Obviously, we'll get into your story of how you started the company here in a second, but just from a personal standpoint, what's... Uh... What's behind the man? Where did you grow up? What is your family life like? From near Tel Aviv. It's a suburb of Tel Aviv. It's called Batyam. It's not the best suburb, uh, uh, but I'm 42, uh, father of three, uh, married to Ila. Uh, I founded a company the same day I met Ila, actually. Really? Yeah, I met my partner, Eyal. We decided that we are going into business together. We are founding a new company. And then at night, I went out, I met a girl. Uh, so it was a good day. Uh, <laughs> it was a very good day for me, uh, December 15, 2016. Uh, so I'm a software engineer. Uh, I did my uh, BSc in computer science in 2001. And while doing it, instead of bartending or waiting tables, uh, I was an affiliate marketer. And this is where I learned about affiliate marketing and performance and internet. Uh, but I also got the education for, uh, for engineering, for developing. 
And this is how the company basically started, uh, knowledge from the engineering landscape and from the affiliate landscape. That was back in 2007 when you met your co-CEO, right? Uh, actually, I met him in 2005. Uh, we worked together in a company named AudioCodes. Uh, we were both software engineers. Uh, I was good. He was amazing. Uh, way, way better than me. Uh, but this is where we met. We were smoking cigarettes all day long in the back room. Uh, <laughs> uh, became very good friends. And I don't know, like two years later, I came up with the idea. Everyone was taking right media seats and building ad networks. And I came up to him and said, listen, why don't we build an ad network? I'm an affiliate marketer and I have this and these difficulties. And, you know, you keep on complaining. Why do Google do this? And why did this guy do that? And we came up and said, okay, why don't we fix it? Why don't we build our own ad network ourselves? Was it display ad network? And we just sat at home for three years developing a product. Uh, no funds, no VCs, no angels. That just uh, the two of us plus one more, Oren, who's no longer with us in the company. And it was crazy three years developing the algorithms, the, the, the ad servers, like everything, the UI from zero, from scratch. That's how the company came to, came to be. <laughs> That's awesome. Obviously, affiliate marketing has become a really big piece of the overall landscape right now. Um, my wife happens to do some, some affiliate marketing things right now, and there's all these networks now. Back then, I imagine it was typically just running either display ads or text links. How were you going out to build the relationships on both the advertiser and the publisher side? So when we finished developing the products, it was 2009. We had the display, we had pop-ups, we had links, we had native, we had everything. Uh, what we didn't have was money. Because <laughs> after three years of working from home, you have like zero money. You even owe some money to your parents and stuff like that. Uh, not the best situation. Uh, but Israel, the good thing about it is that it's quite small. And everyone knows everyone. So we ended up walking to brands and walking to publishers and just pitching a new idea. And Israel was behind and us coming and pitching performance. Uh, people wanted to listen. And so we nailed all the direct relationships with the largest newspapers in Israel and the largest economic uh, uh, publishers. And the largest brands and we got to work with uh, with all the agencies and just everyone knew us back then in Israel. Uh, until 2011 when McCann, Ericsson, UM heard about how we were doing very well with performance and stuff like that and they recruited a few guys who knew about performance and they tried to take a right media seat and for a whole year, we battled here. Uh, we were getting market share and they were getting market share. And by the end of 2011, everyone was so tired <laughs> that they just decided to buy majority shares in premise. And, uh, <laughs> and we found ourselves working uh, here in the building, in the McCann building, uh, with these guys who's, who've been amazing since then. We've been around for 10 years now, almost 10 years. That's great. Was the company always called Premise? Was that the first name or did you uh, pivot to that one? No, it was Secundo in the beginning. We pivoted to Premise when we changed the whole value proposition in January 1st, 2018. Okay. So walk us through the uh, pivot to the video platform that you have now. I'll walk you through the story. Stories are better than uh, platforms. <laughs> 
So we got into the building with a big promise. We are going to take the Sekindo platform, who was the number one or number two ad network in Israel, only after Google. And we are going to take it to outside of Israel. We are going to take it to the US. We are going to take it to England. We are going to take it everywhere. Bad news, 2012, 2013 wasn't the best years to open an ad network in the US. It was <laughs> way too late. Everything was already like... You had no, no room for market. But while we tried to build a performance ad network in the U.S. in 2012, uh, we found out about video. And we started getting questions from publishers and brands and SSPs uh, to develop products around the video landscape. Uh, can you develop a net server? Can you develop a player? Can you get Prebid uh, inside? Can your Prebid integrate with my Prebid? Can you do RTB? Sekindo as a performance ad network was always a very opportunistic uh, company. Like we got uh, some client or some publisher asking us to do something and we'll just say, okay. And we were the same with video. And by the end of 2017 or by the beginning of 2017, we were supporting, I don't know, about 15, maybe 17 different lines of product uh, in video. Some of them were 100% legit. Some of them was, uh, let's say, on the gray area. Uh, <laughs> someone asked us to, I don't know, deliver a product. We'll just sit an engineer, work with him, develop it. Uh, beginning or middle of 2017, we understood that you can't keep up like doing this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You need to think differently. You need to build something else. And we try to change the whole mindset of a company from being an opportunistic, let's say, media buyer that only thinks about how to raise CPMs by 3%, 4%, uh, to building a real video product or real video vision that you can work with partners and build uh, video businesses with them together. How can you go to a publisher and say, listen, I have... These pre-bit capabilities for video and this ad server and this CMS and this content capabilities and like whatever. And just combine them all into one single value proposition and came up with video discovery. Uh, it was a big change for us. And changing the company from an opportunistic company that just develops everything the markets or its clients requires of them to someone who tries to lead the way and have a vision and learn how to say more no than yes, uh, because we say no now 90% of the time, uh, was such a big shift that we also ended up changing the name, the logo, the brand, and just pivoting completely. I, I love hearing those stories. Um, everybody I talk to that has been successful usually has kind of a long and winding road that got them to the point that they are right now, and it sounds like you're no different. How big is the company right now from a headcount standpoint? Uh, about 80 people. Uh, we just moved offices last Tuesday uh, because we were 50 people a year ago and now we're 80 and there's no room. And we did a whole renovation and McCann gave us the first and second floor. So we moved from the fourth floor to the first and second. Nice. Yeah, and we built some, uh, some nice stuff here. You should come visit Israel. 
We'll host you well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's truly on my list. We have a bunch of people on our team that have been and uh, keep saying great things. We're about the same size. We just crossed 80. You're getting close to 90 right now, but we're about 50 last year. And that's an interesting growth spot for a company that kind of going from 50 to 100 employees just brings some different challenges where there's multiple levels of management that have to come in. Have you seen, seen some of those and learned anything through the process? I don't think I cracked it yet. It's changing. <laughs> it's changing all the time. Everything is in a state of flux. Uh, things are changing on a daily basis. And the only thing I learn is how to recognize, let's say, a leader, a good employee, uh, people I like to work with, uh, when you grow 700% in three, four years, then you open up so many positions. Uh, and you learn to have a different point of view uh, on what the roles are. Uh, do I look the same on a team leader now as I did before? Uh, what do I require from a VP? Uh, but it changes all the time. 50 is not 80, and we're still growing. And it evolves all the time. COVID changed things also because suddenly you don't meet people and it's a whole different story. And now we're back on the office. Uh, I just did my third shot of COVID yesterday. They're now giving us the third ones. <laughs> I, I think you're right. We're truly in the exact same spot from a growth perspective. And it's always challenging to know what you're going to need in six months, but also be thinking 18 months down the road, particularly in the hiring standpoint. It's just a different skill set to be running a 100-person company or a 200-person company that is a 20-person company. And unfortunately, there's moments sometimes where companies outgrow people and you've got to make tough changes with people that you really care about that were great from getting it from one stage to the next stage, but maybe not in that next that next level. And, and it's tough. But it's fun, right? The growth is the, the best part of this whole thing. And as one of our board members says, if you're not sort of breaking things every day, you're probably not growing fast enough. So I think it's a good problem to have. Yeah, definitely. The best one. Absolutely. So, so looking back a little bit, obviously, you guys have had tremendous success. You've been through different iterations of the business. What would you say are some of sort of the hardest points in the path that you've had getting to where you are right now? And what have you learned from those? Uh, I think there were a couple uh, after so many years. The first one, obviously, was the first three years. Uh, sitting at home, trying to get some VC angels, uh, someone to recognize us, the team, the product, who we were, uh, but continuing to believe, let's say, continuing to sit at home, develop a product, go for the market. Uh, it was an amazing lesson uh, but I think it was the one of the hardest challenges of my life. Uh, just staying home without any money, without anything for three years, uh, just running on belief, and that's it. Uh, the second one was probably the pivot in 2018. Uh, six months before that, uh, Oren left. Oren was a third partner in Sakinda back then, and he left the company. And we found ourselves pivoting the whole company, myself and Eyal, uh, my co-CEO and co-founder, and just trying to figure out what's next. And coming, coming up with the idea and changing the whole mindset 
of the company from a more, again, media buyer kind of point of view into a more strategic one, but also going to McCann and telling them, listen, we are going to pivot the business and we are going to go to all of our clients and to all of our publishers and tell them that we are no longer supporting their ad businesses. We are now changing everything to this single value proposition. If you're with us, okay. If you're not, take the 60, 90 days, find another platform, we're out. And doing this, we had to let go of 70% of our revenue. And just explaining to McCann that we are about to give up on 70% of the revenue because we believe that sometime down the road it will be better and convincing them that this is the right move. Um, that was hard, even though they are a very acceptive partner. Uh, but then getting the employees on board and some of them didn't believe and they left. And it's like the whole situation of 2007 again. Uh, you're suddenly not making any money. Employees are leaving. They're jumping cheap. Partners in McCann are trying to give you time to manage through, but they are looking at the bottom line from time to time, let's say, also. Uh, that was extremely challenging for us. Wow, that is so impressive and having the resolve to stick with that plan and look yourself in the mirror every night and say, this is the right thing, this is the right thing, had to be so wildly challenging. I mean, the spoil the uh, ending here, it ended up working out very well for you with McCann ultimately buying the rest of the company. We'll touch on that here in a little bit. Um, what would you say are some of the things that you're most proud of that you've been able to accomplish? Obviously, you've, you've seen some of the tough points and the lows. There had to be a lot of highs along the way as well. Uh, the highs, we had an, we had an eye almost every year. Uh, again, me, my partners, we are both engineers. Uh, the company itself, the VPs, the directors, everyone is very, very techy here. And because of that, the culture of the company is a culture of innovation. And since we established the video discovery in 2017, and we launched in 2018, but obviously we came up with the idea a bit before. <laughs> Almost every year we did something new that was challenging, that was, I don't know, uh, thinking ahead, let's say. Uh, so we started doing supply path optimization from the publisher side or let's say us network side in 2018. Uh, I don't know many publishers who started doing this in 2018. Uh, we changed our all viewability for video in 2018. Also, we came up with 70% benchmark. Uh, by 2019, we became about 80, 85% benchmark. And again, believing that Let's cut loose. Let's just throw away all the non-viewable impressions. We know we will lose a lot of revenue now, but long term, it will be better for us. Uh, in 2020, when the Better Ads Initiative uh, said that they are sunsetting mid-rolls for short-form video, we had to come up with something for our publisher. We came up uh, with Premise Next. Uh, which is a very interesting solution for publishers who can now have can now recommend more videos for their users and get them engaged with more videos, uh, but still have more inventory than they used to have. Uh, 
2021, we built Seller's Guide, uh, which is, I believe, a very nice initiative uh, for the supply chain. Again, because we have so much experience since 2018, uh, so we decided to try and become an industry leader in something and build something to share knowledge, to shed light on the industry, uh, to help the industry become more transparent. We, I'm going to actually pause pause you there. Can you explain Seller's Guide to everybody? It's something that you guys kind of founded as its own company seemingly, um, I guess, this year. Just explain sort of the background to that one. It's a pretty noble cause, I will say. So Seller's Guide, we have a belief here in Premise that when everyone feels safe, uh, they do more business together. And... We don't think, we think that our industry is way better than it used to be. Like, let's say, pre-ads.txt or pre-seller.json. But the industry is not transparent enough still. Uh, we don't think that publishers or that many publishers, let's say, really know what to do with our ads.txt. We go into sites that have those thousands of lines. Uh, because some sites have thousands of lines, some others just say, I'm not willing to try anything new. And they just kill all innovation. Uh, brands are concerned with, I don't know if you heard about the missing 15%, but about 15% of the revenue, of the online revenue, the programmatic one is missing. No one knows where it is. It's like on a pirate ship somewhere. <laughs> and when an industry is not safe, people don't want, don't want to invest into, into this industry. Uh, oh or they want to invest less because obviously a lot of people are investing a lot of money in online advertising. And we decided that we know a lot about the supply chain and we can help the industry, let's say, build a better supply chain. And using tools like ads.txt and sales.json, uh, we built an auto automation process that helps publishers clean up their ads.txt and by doing so, we built a better, let's say, path for brands uh, to buy the inventory. Uh, but we also create an ecosystem where publishers feel safer working with, uh, let's say, vendors like us or others uh, that they didn't know what to do with up until now. I think that's fantastic. And certainly this industry, there's a new company that pops up every single day that it's tough to know what's legitimate or not legitimate. And then from the advertiser side, obviously there are so many different players and, you know, levels of intermediaries in the middle of this that it's difficult and anything we can do to sort of help paint that picture, make it a little more clear, I think is something wonderful for all of us. And hopefully we can all capture some of that 15%. So I appreciate what you're doing there. I would recommend every publisher to, really, it's free. Just go inside, put your domain in. It's like a search engine. It's more like, a, let's say, a page speed result by Google. Uh, you put your domain in and you get some recommendation on how you can fix stuff very easily. Uh, so you go into Seller's Guide, you uh, log in a domain. It's free. We don't ask for nothing. And then you get a recommendation on how you can clean up your ads.txt and improve the supply chains for, uh, for your buyers. And it's just building a better industry. Awesome. Switching gears just slightly back to your actual core business here. Obviously, videos had tremendous growth and sort of some twists and turns in terms of formats and all different things over the last four, five, eight years, something like that. Where do you think the future of video, where is it heading right now? 
so fragmented that <laughs> I don't think that the future of video is one thing. Uh, but if I'll try to look at the video as a whole, then again, I feel like we lack standardization somehow. Uh, you get UGC. Uh, but now it's not only UGC, it's like an influencer's economy. And people can watch UGC on their iPhones or maybe on their YouTube, on their CTV, and they can watch a full-length series on their phone. And you don't really know what's what. Like if I watch a full-length video on my phone, is it CTV or is it uh, just regular uh, mobile web or app? Uh, if I watch UGC on my YouTube, what is it? like YouTube via, via Smart TV. And again, uh, the same concept for us is always how do we build a safe environment for everyone? Uh, because if I'm an advertiser and I buy something and I don't really know what CTV is uh, or what web is or what mobile web is and what, what's UGC, what's influencers, uh, <clears throat> then there's an issue. Uh, I think that the IAB will have their hands full for the next couple of years trying to figure out what's what. And as they build their own like, economy or rules or regulations, uh, we'll see more revenue pouring in uh, as people feel safer or as people feel that everything has rules and that everything is more direct and they know what to do and what not to do. Uh, so I think that everything is growing. Mobile web is growing for video and apps and CTV, obviously, is growing tremendously. Uh, but in order to really make it, uh, you need to have like rules, regulations, uh, do's, don'ts, uh, stuff like that. You think the IAB is the best place for that to happen? Um, obviously, they've set out to do a lot of things sometimes with that many people involved it can be challenging i guess but they feel like the only group that probably can make it happen yeah uh i think they're the most equipped one to do it uh you can have like you can say it's good enough not good enough, it doesn't really matter i don't know anyone else who can do it. <laughs> like uh, i yeah. can uh, unless just google decide with Google Chrome to do whatever they want. Awesome. Well, obviously, video has been evolving. I feel like our industry just continues to evolve every single day. We were talking about that when we were preparing here a little bit. What are the other things you see on the, the horizon here? I know we talked about privacy and better ads and various things. What else is sort of keeping you up at night or are you keeping an eye on? Actually, currently, nothing is keeping me up at night. Uh, I feel very... Oh. No, not because there are no threats. I think that there are like tremendous threats uh, to our industry, to my business, to, to, to everything. Uh, to the, maybe it's because I'm, I've been doing it for 20 years. Uh, I think that our industry is sometimes uh, an apocalyptic, let's say, industry. Everyone is like, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. It is. Oh no, people won't be able to download illegal videos now. So the internet is dead. Uh, <laughs> how will we monetize now that pop-ups are gone? Uh, every time something happens, everyone is very, very stressed and think that no, nothing will save the day. Again, like I said with seller's guide and like I said with the video economy, 
the industry is maturing. The industry, it's, a, it's a good thing. Uh, we used to go online to download illegal videos. Now we go online to do other stuff that are way more productive. The ad industry, you used to just see buttons, you click on them, you don't know where they direct you and how and just download here, stuff like that. The fact that our industry is maturing is a good thing. We need more sometimes uh, when it comes from the people, when it comes from the users. Uh, it's a good thing. And now privacy is the latest concern. Uh, Google gave us, let's say, a few more years to take care of it. Uh, but it's still a big concern. But again, I think it's a good thing. I think that looking back in three, four, five years, everyone knows that the online industry will make more revenue. Uh, they still don't know how. But I think that looking back, we'll be able to say, Oh, killing pop-ups and making people feel safer on the internet might might be a good thing for the <laughs> for the ecosystem for the monetization. Maybe if we make people feel safer uh, with privacy, they will log in more, they will leave their email more, they will buy more, they will use the internet more. Uh, so I think that many times we look and say the world is gone. And then three, four, five years later, we look back and say, oh, that actually saved us. So I think that this is like uh, my point of view on privacy and stuff like that. Uh, that's why we do sales guide also, as I mentioned, uh, just building a safe ecosystem for everyone uh, usually turns up to make everything better in the long term. I could not agree with you more. I, I can't figure out if it's just to be able to pump out the next uh, daily newsletter or whatever, but our, our press and our industry just loves to say the sky's falling. I feel like every single day and then, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, we persevere and just get better and better. And I think you're right. I think that transparency side of things makes all the players feel better up and down the value chain here and only helps us. And, you know, we're not seeing the spend slow down. So clearly we're doing something right here so far, which is, which is good for our businesses for sure. Uh, on, on good and bad for the businesses, how did the pandemic affect your business? It was obviously very interesting from where we sat. We saw a massive decrease in CPMs in the second quarter of 2020, and then a pretty darn quick rebound into a very good 2021 so far. How was that for you? And then obviously touched on it earlier about remote versus in-person sort of how has the pandemic kind of reshaped how you've either done business or plan to do business? Well, so it was very stressing in the beginning. Let's say that April and May of last year was, wow, it was crazy. The amount of meetings, cancellations, uh, it changed everything completely. But we went from a company that flies like two times a month to the US, to Europe, to everywhere. Because we are Israeli based, we needed to fly so much uh, to a company that just doesn't fly anymore. Changed everything completely, but Israel is unique because everyone, I think that 80% of our employees live about, let's say, within a 15 miles range of the office. Uh, so wow. Yeah, many people came to the office even in the worst days of the first lockdown, uh, just because it was easier for them to work from here. Uh, so we stayed in touch. Uh, we met outside the office on the streets. 
uh, it was easier for us uh, to, to, to meet, to get together. Uh, we were also one of the first uh, countries to get vaccinated. As I said, I just got my third one. Um, so that worked out very well for us also. Uh, but like you said, April, May was bad. June was already good. And since then, everything just exploded. And I don't think that we're very unique uh, uh, with like what we've experienced in terms of CPM, stuff like that. I think that for an Israeli company, it did, it did us a bit good because I think the world is about, it's more flat now than it used to be. Like, we used to be in a disadvantage because all you Americans will get together and meet and we are here and we need to fly from time to time. And now everyone is meeting in Hangout. So you need to stay up till 4 or 5 p.m. and we get to speak as if, as if we're in the same country, let's say. Uh, time zone is still an issue, but not location. So maybe for us it was a bigger upside than others. Uh, but again, since pandemic, since June or July of 2020, Numbers just exploded. We needed to move office now. I can't say good times, but McCann are happy with the numbers, let's say. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, I, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is not exactly the digital media capital of the world either. So I was pretty regularly on planes back and forth to New York or L.A. or various places, which was fun. But I have to admit, it's been nice to be able to just do some of the meetings just virtually and save yourself that red eye to New York for sure. So I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned McCann here. Obviously, they had, no, not obviously, but you had mentioned earlier that they had done um, an initial investment. I think it was a majority deal to start with, but not a full company um, acquisition. And then recently, they did actually buy the rest of the company, correct? Uh, yeah. Following the growth of 2020 and the vision of the company and what we've experienced together, uh, they bought the remaining shares. I think it was, yeah, two, three months ago, in April, four months ago now. Uh, time flies. But for us, it's kind of the same. I mean, you wake up, you drive to the same office, you work with the same people, you're in the same position. They give us a lot of independence on how we work, stuff like that. Uh, and the sense of, I don't know, ownership, me and my partner still have over the company after 15 years. Uh, again, it's the same. They bought the shares, but besides that, we're all working as if they didn't. That's great to hear. Something we try to instill in all of our employees is a real ownership mentality. And I think that can be just a mentality. It doesn't have to be actual ownership. But if you show up every single day, treating it like it's your own, spending the money like it's your own, making the decisions, helping out a client where you got to pitch in and you know do something extra for them with that ownership mentality, you're going to go a lot farther as a business. So good to hear that, I guess, despite not being an owner anymore, you're maintaining that um, on the sort of leadership side of things, what would you say is your style? Obviously, you came from an engineering background, not a traditional business background, but have been doing this for a very long time. Any tips or tricks you could share with people on leadership? I'll just give the advice that uh, Amir Weiss, uh, he's the CEO of UM here, of Universal McCann, uh, gave me when I entered the building in 2012. And he said, the best employees follow up with you and you don't need to follow up with them. And this is going with me like since then. Uh, so you work with someone, you set up a vision, and you send them out and say, okay, now let, 
go do it. You're, uh, you're in the field, you're speaking with the people, uh, go and make the vision happen. The good employees, the good people will just follow up with you, I don't know, sometimes even three times a day. I did this, I did that. What do you think about that? And it's just like, you know, micro-advising, micro-speaking about small stuff that keeps you updated, that keeps you in the loop. Uh, but then you have a full picture over what's going on in the business and what everyone's doing. And you get to sync everyone and just know everything about the business. And I don't know, I just try to educate everyone to follow up with me so I won't need to follow up with them. If I'm giving you a mission and I need to follow, with, follow up with you from time to time, then something is wrong. But if you're constantly updating me on what's happening, even if nothing happens, and you still find a way to tell me, okay, you remember we spoke about this, it's still, it's in a process and keeps the wheels in motion and everything moving. And it makes my job way easier. And that's the one advice I took that was amazing. And the one advice I keep telling others to try and work with. I think that's fantastic advice. And honestly, as I look back on some of the very best employees that I've had and folks I'm working with now, it is the proactive ones that are making your life easier of like, hey, this problem happened. Just want to let you know it happened, but it's already taken care of. We've got these three things done and going. And that's the best news you can get. I want to know about the bad things that are happening, but I also like to know that the solution is underway versus us, you know, you and I having to fix these things. That's, that's great. Um, obviously you're running a very international company right now. Obviously the last couple of years have been interesting for that, but just generally, have you found any interesting challenges in that? How have you managed running this international company and bringing things to the U S that's just something I've never done. And I'm always curious how people have managed that. I don't know. So, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that for us, working from Israel, again, the key is innovation, the key is technology, the key is to do something new. It's, it's challenging. Uh, you need sometimes to be a bit better, more innovative, uh, think differently. Uh, it's not enough to just go and speak with someone. Uh, we go to conventions and it's not the same mentality. Uh, you don't have the same conversations. You don't know a lot about the same sports. So you need to speak value and only value all the time. I think you and I actually met for the first time at a conference. It might have been the last conference either of us went to before COVID. I think it was, was it IAB in Palm Springs. Yeah. I think we had a, a cocktail in the lobby. We found plenty of things to talk about, even if it wasn't sports. So it was good. <laughs> but I don't know anything even about Israeli sports. So. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely fantastic, Tim. There's one question I like to ask all of our guests at the end, which is, what's one piece of advice that you'd give your younger self? Don't listen to your future self. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, that too. Don't, don't listen to your future self. The future self is <laughs> like those VCs who kept on telling you why you can't make it happen and why it's too complicated and why the world is not exactly as you think it is. Uh, just don't listen to him. Do whatever you want. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe take an advice, but don't take it all the way. Uh, the second thing is, again, uh, think about the value you deliver, not to your clients. Try to think behind your clients. Uh, let's say that we develop products for publishers. 
and publishers want monetization. So when you only think about the monetization of a single publisher, you develop in-banner videos, you develop pop-ups, you develop buttons that lead people to wherever because they say download or you don't think about the user, you don't think about the advertiser, you don't think about the conversion, you just think about the publisher and what it needs to create revenue right now. It can generate revenue. Uh, it helped us generate revenue as a Kindle for eight years, uh, something like that. And it was nice. Uh, but when you look behind your, let's say, the publisher and think about what does it advertiser want, what does the user want, and try to think about something more sustainable, something more strategic to build something together, and you come up to this publisher and tell them, listen, I know that this might make three cents or five cents or 20 cents more, but it's wrong because your users will suffer. Then you have a whole different business. This is how we started the company in 2007, eight, nine, when it was still a performance network. In the beginning, we were educating publishers and advertisers and trying to work together. But it's very easy to start doing some, let's say again, pop-ups, uh, stuff that is not, let's say, very good for everyone. And it takes time to grow to, to, to a place where you think about the ecosystem and not just your client. What's, what's in today? Uh, what's the requirements from the market today? Uh, you need to think about more. Uh, that is so fantastic to hear. I love hearing businesses that kind of play the long game and aren't in it for the quick buck. And clearly you've learned that over your career. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you in person some last year. And then over these last few weeks, we've gotten to spend more time. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just a treat. Thanks for having me. And again, I hope uh, we should be in San Diego by uh, November. So we'll be close by. Sounds good. Well, I can't wait to uh, pick up that in-person conversation we left in California last time I saw you. Thanks. <laughs> can't wait also. Thank you again to our special guest, Rotem, over at Premise for taking the time to chat with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you have a spare moment, please check us out on Google Play, iTunes, or your listening platform of choice. Please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. For feedback or suggestions for guests, you can reach us at podcast at freestar.com. And a special thanks to Matt Hainline for our music and our marketing team for helping with editing, production, and making sure people know this podcast exists. Until next time. Mm-hmm.